The WHO and EU debate introducing digital vaccination certificates to get people back on airplanes. Ecuador's presidential election goes into a runoff. And the Eurovision Song Contest is back. Come rain or shine, sequins will grace the stage in Rotterdam this spring. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24, coming to you from Studio One at Madari House in London. I'm Carlotta Rubello. I'm joined today by our usual Monday evening duo, Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck and Monocle 24's culture correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Andrew and Fernando, welcome both back to the show. Lovely to be actually in studio with both of you today. We just need to start with the obvious and get it out of the way. What about this snow? (laughs) It's so cold. Uh, well, it's very, very cold, uh, but I must say that it always gets billed so heavily when there's a bit of bad weather coming or a bit of snow coming. So you would imagine that we've got like several feet of snow outside. It's, it's, it's a little bit of dusting. <laughs> it, looks, it looks better than nothing, but it is not quite the storm that we promised. Elsewhere in the countryside it is, but there's something about London. It seems to kind of like repel the snow every time. Fernando, how are you coping with a cold? I know that you've been complaining all day here in the office. I mean, I do feel cold, but I have to say, uh, for me, you know, I do love a little bit of snow, actually. And I, and I wish it would snow a little bit more uh, here in London. But to be honest, I mean, this week, I mean, it's predicted to be even colder than today. So, you know... There might be some good news uh, later this week. <laughs> well, let's move away from the snow, Andrew. Uh, how is this week shaping up for you? Well, the good thing is we've just sent uh, another issue to press. So it's, it, the, the magazine, it, it, it's very nice when it goes. There's a few days when it's a little bit calmer. So it's sort of planning and, and plotting. Uh, you and me were making uh, a nice urbanist this week. And you've already told me you've got more requests in for interviews than I will ever be able to get through. Let's see what happens uh, to, the week, to the week ahead. But all good, all good on the on the editorial side. Now, Fernando, the last time we spoke here on Monocle 24, you and I, we were talking about the Glo- Golden Globes nominations. Now, have you gone through the list and do you have a, f- a few couple of evenings packed to try to catch up? Absolutely. And I am mildly annoyed as well, Carlotta, because the films, they take ages to arrive here in the UK streaming. But there are films, for example, I'm dying to see French Exit, where Michelle Pfeiffer plays an eccentric socialite and she has a cat and she moves to Paris and the cat is basically her reincarnated husband. I love that plot and I'm, I really need to see that. She's being nominated for Best Actress. Well, we'll wait for your review. Andrew and Fernanda, thank you both for joining us here on the Late Edition today. Let's begin with the concept of vaccine passports or digital vaccination certificates, an idea that both the World Health Organization and the European Union are debating at the moment as a viable possibility to help countries open up safely. Well, earlier we heard from Josh Coles, who is a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Clearly, we're all familiar by now with the concerns around data privacy and the importance of keeping people's sensitive personal information secure. And of course, it doesn't get much more secure and sensitive than health data, particularly given that uh, what you might be able to learn about someone's immunity status to COVID might also be able to tell you about many other things, such as their age, uh, their background, and even uh, other related medical conditions. So I think on, on that kind of level of individual privacy, that clearly we need to um, ask some questions about how this data will be kept secure and whether we want every uh, airline and concert venue to know uh, whether we've had uh, vac- uh, vaccination. But I think also on, on the macro level, there's also concerns that might arise around this, the risk of creating kind of a, a biological business class, if you like, uh, where people who have had the vaccination are able to move freely around in great comfort and those who haven't aren't. 
Josh Coles there speaking to us earlier on The Globalist. Uh, Andrew, I'll come to you first. I'm curious to hear your take on this because clearly this is a technology that could help revive the tourism industry and help businesses. But are we incurring the risk of making travel even more of a luxury, or even more of an exclusive sector? Well, it's interesting. I, I, and, and in fact, I don't think it comes down to money in the end, because don't, let's remember that these vaccines are going to be offered in, in nearly every country, I believe all countries, for free. So it, it's, it's, not, it's not luxury in that sense that you have to have wealth to access the vaccine programmes in most places around the world. I can't guarantee what's going to happen in every developing nation. So that's not the issue. It sounds like a very nice idea when you first think about it. It, it seems logical. You've had the vaccination. Uh, we already know that many other countries require you to have vaccinations for other other uh, issues before you're allowed to enter, before you're allowed to travel. And we've got used to that. You know, if you were going to a country where it said, you know, you need to have a, a yellow fever jab before you arrive, you, you, you would have it and you would do it. That doesn't seem complicated. But the strange thing here is, that first of all, the rollout time is, is 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 long and arduous. So it could be that some countries weren't allowed to travel at all for a couple of years because their vaccine programs were slow. If you look at developing nations, we know that what's going to happen, first of all, is people over 50 are, are allowed to travel. So great, I would fall into that category. So it does mean that the hotels would perhaps be cheaper and you'd have to have all these resorts. I don't know, I really want to be stuck in a place with only people of my own age, but that's that's another another story. So then you begin to see how complicated it is. Now, there's also some people who are in health groups where they, they may not feel that they, they should take a vaccine. So then that becomes complicated. Those people excluded forever from travel. And, and then, I don't know, it's it's also just a bit weird that actually it focuses on the notion that travel is about holidays and the one of the most important things about travel is is economy it's keeping things moving now the majority of people jumping on planes and and for business um, some are but very few are in their 70s 80s and 90s when they're traveling for business so then the people who, who could really do with going to meet business partners to getting industry going again they would be excluded from the flight. So then it all becomes terribly complicated. So I, what I think is, at the moment, it's, it's not feasible. Although some places are already introducing it. Estonia already has a program. But in the long term, I think you're going to need it. And I think everybody will be required to have one. One last thing I noticed here in the UK, Saga, a company that organises a large number of um, cruises for senior citizens, they're saying for anybody going on one of their ships this year, if if they get to sail, you will have to prove that you've had the vaccine before you get on board. So even if governments don't get involved in it, private companies are going to begin to insist on this for travel. Well, we've already seen uh, uh, that similar approach with introducing mandatory testing. I think this is the next step. And it was really interesting to hear what you mentioned there about, you know, age and businesses, because that for me is the biggest question, you know, that age gap between 18 and 50 years old are the last ones to be vaccinated in most nations. And as you just said correctly, it's uh, the most likely to travel and to pump some money into the economy. Um, so it will be interesting to see, you know, how to go around that. Uh, Fernando, one other issue here is, you know, how to ensure that there's a, a standard approach between countries, you know, if there is to be introduced a, a digital certificate, that every country has the same way of approaching it. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing your data? Well, 
personally, personally, I would actually, but I agree with you that it would be hard, you know, for every single country to have the same standards. I think for now is Sweden and Denmark, correct? I mean, their countries, they're you know, they're linked, they're they're neighboring countries. Uh, I wonder if it would work in another countries. And I, I agree with what Andrew said. You know, it's not only people going on holiday, even though holidays are also very important in my opinion. But you know, people they they fly for business. We live in a globalized world. We also have to see families. You know, and as as you know that right, Kalota. Uh, so again, I see that some countries might only be vaccinated next year. You see, for example, the whole of Africa. I think, uh, you know, it's being predicted that uh, some, you know, everyone just might be only vaccinated in 2023. I mean, does that mean that they will not be able to travel? That you're not going to be able to visit uh, South Africa or Kenya? I, you know, I, I wouldn't like to think that way. Uh, so, I don't know, could be a, a good decision for a couple of smaller countries, but I wonder if that will be incorporated to the bigger ones. Well, let's move on now to Ecuador, one of the only Latin American countries to host a presidential election this year. Uh, Fernando, set the scene for us. How did the vote go yesterday? I think the, the vote went smoothly. Uh, they had 16 candidates. That's quite a lot. Uh, uh, and, and I think a lot is being surprising, actually, the runoff, because the, all I I can say in the latest update, they had almost 98% of the vote counted, but we still don't know who is going to the runoff with Andrea Arauz, who is only 35. But Andrea Arauz, he represents what Rafael Correa did uh, in the mid-noughties. Rafael Correa was president when Ecuador was growing a lot. There was a strong welfare state. Uh, of course, uh, there's been a couple of corruption charges against him and he's being exiled to Belgium. Uh, so he, you know, there is a part of Ecuador that really likes Korea, but he's also quite a divisive figure. And that's the interesting thing here, because in the, in the runoff, there are two potential candidates, Guillermo Lasso, the conservative one, and also Jaco Perez, who is... Uh, could be potentially the first indigenous president in Ecuador. We don't know who is it going to be actually yet, but he's getting the leftist vote of people that, you know, they vote left, but they don't want to be associated with Korea, for example. Well, stay with us, Fer, because earlier we heard from our Latin America affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, who told us more about what to expect from that second runoff, which is scheduled for April the 11th. Arrows is linked to former President Correa and roughly a fifth of Ecuadorians are loyal Correistas, but he is a very divisive figure in the country. And the vote is sort of seen as a referendum on Correa's popularity and sort of together they're making all sorts of promises to voters. Already, Arrows has encouraged people to sign up for this $1,000 handout um, on offer on his website that he's vowed to use central bank money to, to support. At the same time, he's also pledging higher taxes for the rich. Um, Lasso, on the other hand, his potential rival candidate has pledged to create two million jobs. Um, but if Arrows wins, it will almost certainly mean the return to Ecuador of Correa, who is in exile in Belgium, and he's been sentenced to eight years in jail for corruption in his home country. And Arrows has said that he's confident that the courts will drop the charges if he wins the presidency. Monaco's Lucinda Elliott there. Uh, Fernando, why is Correa still such an important figure in Ecuador? Well, important and divisive, as, as Lucinda was saying. I mean, I, I generally think people remember of the good times economic-wise for the country. I mean, it was growing uh, between, I think, 2010 and 2014 
more than 5% a year. That, that's quite remarkable. I mean, and, and the current president, Lenin Moreno, who didn't even try re-election, his policies were very market-friendly and everything. But the country's economy was not doing well. Uh, there was a lot of mishandling with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that kind of opened the door uh, to have a candidate uh, favored by Rafael Correa, who even though, I mean, there's corruption charges, as, as Lucinda was saying, but people have also the kind of the good memories. But if Jaco Perez goes to the second round, that would be very interesting. And that could perhaps be the trend for the left in the continent not being associated with these old leaders from the past who had a lot of good good things about then, but also the corruption side of things, which makes also kind of make make them very divisive in a way. So the emergence of a new left? Yeah, and, and I, I find it personally quite exciting. And I say the new left. I mean, Jaco Perez is, is much older, actually, than uh, Andrea Arauz, but he does represent uh, some sort of newness there. Well, we'll be keeping our eye on it until the second runoff on April the 11th. Now, finally today, well, the good news we've all been waiting for. The Eurovision Song Contest is set to go ahead this year in Rotterdam in May. The organisers have released a detailed plan on how they are going to adapt the event to the circumstances at the time, ranging from a regular show to plans on how to go ahead if there's a full lockdown in place. Andrew, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am really excited about these news. I really missed Eurovision last year. Me and Fernando had a lot of conversations about it, even though they did do a virtual show in lieu of the actual contest. is not the same thing. I actually don't know the answer to this question, but are you a big Eurovision fan or not? Well, uh, I don't think you have much choice actually around here. <laughs> and uh, I, don't, I certainly don't know all the, the, the facts and the, 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 the history like Fernando does. We have to point out that Fernando actually has the title of you know Eurovision correspondent here at, at Monocle. He's managed to kind of over the years kind of build up its coverage and make sure that we're at every event. Well, he's at every event, that's for sure. And uh, I think he's found it one of the most exciting parts of his career. Look, the reason we, we like it as a, as a brand, and I think why we all kind of tap into it in the end, is because while it's 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 as you say, it's about sequins and frivolity and and it's mad. It's also, it, it, it does give odd hints about relationships between nations, about who sticks with who. The the voting never seems to be entirely free of like dodgy decisions. But because of that, it's, it's a good snapshot of, of, of where the world sits. And you do get some good pop songs out of it and it does change a few people's careers here in the uk it's, it's always a bit of a disaster i think you know, the the british music industry takes itself so seriously it never kind of really engages it with it very well as an event and also because the, the uk has been such a kind of um, a thorn in the backside of europe as you might say for, for some years we i we're not exactly the first nation that you would vote for and i would i would imagine that you know the likelihood of france giving us you know a high score in the coming years is is very unlikely. So it is is great. It's fun. It's uh, informative about lots of things more than just uh, who's writing good pop tunes. Well, maybe it's just a coincidence that the year right after the Brexit referendum was one of the worst for the UK <laughs> in terms of classifications. <laughs> Fernando, now before we even come to you, I know you're already in love with Lithuania's entry. Let's just do it and have a listen. My eyes are blinking and I don't know what is happening. I can't control it, don't wanna end it There's no one here and I don't care, I feel it's safe to dance alone Dance alone, 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 dance alone. Let's disco 
Well, if there's any doubts on that side, Fernando really was dancing to that. Give me goosebumps almost. <laughs> Why do you love this track so much? Well, first of all, I'm glad they're back because the Roop were the the Lithuanian act uh, last year with a great song, but they, you know, they managed to create another great song. And I have to say, for those who haven't seen the video, he's wearing some lovely, a pair of high-waisted yellow trousers. And as you know, Kalot, it's my favorite color. I'm wearing actually a yellow sweater today. It's just fantastic. It's kind of electric beat but with some touches of Leonard Cohen I hope his fans are not going to be angry with me but you know I, I, I do think it's going to be a good entry this year and I'm glad some of the artists from last year are returning not all of them uh, but with new songs of course Have all the countries picked their entry? What's the timeline? When can we actually do our playlist and listen to all of them? Listen then we have to talk again end of March so far only five countries actually officially selected their tracks uh, as you know you've heard the Ukrainian one which is a bit of a, a strange, dark, electro-folk interesting. Uh, piece. It's interesting. <laughs> uh, perhaps not for me, but, you know, I'm sure perhaps some of our listeners might like that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's quite exciting and I'm glad it will happen in one way or another. It might be still quite restrictive. Uh, there might not be kind of an audience in the stadium. They don't yet know that, but we will have a winner. It's not going to be like last year. And thank God for that. Uh, Andrew, are we able to convince you to join the watch party on, on in May for Eurovision? <laughs> well, unless, if, it's, if it's actually a proper party and we're coming together and there's going to be a few drinks, so you can count me in. All right, Fernando. Maybe better I'm going to wear yellow trousers. Better start organizing and get your best yellow outfits on. That is the dress code for the Eurovision Song Contest party. Fernando and Andrew, thank you both for joining us on the late edition today. And our thanks as well to our studio manager, Steph Chungo. I'm Carlotta Rubello here in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow.